It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. I have an announcement to make, ladies and gentlemen. We have become a nation of nincompoops. As I look around the landscape of our political world, there are people absolutely everywhere losing their minds, demanding specific instructions on everyday decisions that they used to make all by themselves just two months ago, and wondering whether or not staying alert means anything. What does it mean? What could it possibly be that they have a problem with? It's called staying alert. It means just be alert. What's wrong with the country that we now live in? It's filled with complete and utter Charlies, people who can't decide which shoe to put on before the other. They can't decide which foot to put in front of the other when they go out for a walk. They can't decide how to get to work if they're told to go back to work. How did we get there? When did we get here? When did we go on holiday? How do we get there? How do we use the car? Where are the keys? Are they in Downing Street? Should I ask Boris for them? Should he tell me what to have for lunch or dinner? Should I not have dinner? Should I go to the shop? Should I not go to the shop? I mean, for God's sake, people, the questions arising from Boris Johnson's speech to the nation last night are entirely laughable. The Prime Minister, in an attempt to sum up exactly where we are, uh, managed to do so. I thought perfectly adequately he explained that and told us how the roadmap to getting out of this ghastly situation is going to work. The fact of the matter is that the world has been infected by a virus which was not foreseen, which has devastated the lives of millions of families around the globe and which has paralysed the world's economy. The fact that a few Boris-hating Ramonas are now trying to blame him from their Surrey mansions, or indeed from their palatial houses in West London. It's totally ridiculous. We want to hear from you, of course, the voices of sanity and common sense, because surely you don't need to have your hand held continually. Surely you don't need constant instructional guidance, do you? I give you permission right now to listen to this radio show for the next three hours. If you have a problem with that, by all means, give me a call. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, Peter Hitchens is going to join us for more debate about the lockdown and what he made of the Prime Minister's speech last night. Plus, we'll go to Scotland to discover just why Nicola Sturgeon is so obsessed with upstaging Downing Street. And we will talk to the man who interviewed Boris just two weeks ago, Mr David Wooding uh, from The Sun on Sunday. He's going to be here as well. 0344 499 1000. Now, which consumer experts will be discussing what to expect from retail? Taylor's this week, and our homeschooling section is with newsreader extraordinaire Sandy War. She'll be telling you how to find your voice. 0344 
499-1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I'm not sure whether to take a sip of my coffee before I speak to David Wooding or afterwards, so I'm going to ask my producer for permission uh, to drink my coffee because I've lost the will to make any kind of decision whatsoever about my own personal well-being. She's nodding at me, so I'm going to have a little sip of coffee. Oh, mm. Mm, that was very nice. Now I'm going to talk to David Wooding because I've been given permission to talk to David Wooding by my producer. Mr David Wooding, a very good morning. Morning. Is it OK to speak? Well, I don't know. Have you got permission from the Prime Minister, please? Because, I don't uh, know. I, I, I haven't spoken to him since last week, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, great interview that you did with him last week. Tremendous piece of journalism. Well played. It was the interview everybody wanted, and only you would be able to get it. Um, this week, you had another couple of great exclusives, which we'll get on to later. But can you believe, seriously, David, where we are now going with the numbers of people, many of them from the left of politics, saying, well, we don't understand what uh, being alert means. There's a poll just been released by YouGov which says something ridiculous, like 80% of people don't understand what being alert means that they should do. Yes, um, there, there is an element of confusion in the nation at the moment. <laughs> really? Which, 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 is, which has been uh, uh, sparked by a number of things. One of them is um, a week of speculation right. uh, and, and, and counter-briefing because the Prime Minister let us all know he was going to make this announcement uh, on Sunday. Um, and, of course, the people who wanted the lockdown lifting, the, 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 the hawks, as they've been dubbed, those who think, let's end the lockdown and get Britain moving again because it's costing the economy £2.4 billion pounds a day, right. £120 billion so far, um, are saying we can't go on paying for this. And they've been briefing what he should do. Uh, and, and people have been speculating on what, what might be in there. And, of course, he was looking at all these measures. And then there's the other lot on the other side, the doves, who were saying, no, 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 we've got to keep Britain locked down for as long as it takes as far as defeated. And they've been briefing other things. So, of course, there were mixed messages going out um, all on unofficial lines, and people began to speculate what would happen and what they thought would happen. And, of course, when he comes out, and it's, it's a very sketchy outline, of course, we'll hear more uh, later today when uh, the Prime Minister announces to the Commons, we, 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 we've just ended up with people thinking, oh, well, well what's he said? And, 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 of course, not everybody is like you and me, Mike, and they don't listen to every word and, and take, take note. They just get the, the general view and think, oh, what's he said? Um, and they can't be bothered reading what it's all about. Well, I mean, these, are, papers, also, these are the same people. The but these are the same people who were critical when the government wasn't supposedly doing enough. When the government then announces it's going to do something, they're critical. When the government says that they're going to ease restrictions on something, uh, they say that's the wrong way to go. Uh, when they say they're not going to ease restrictions on something, they also think that's wrong. So, I mean, I don't know what these people want. No, uh, and this is, the, this is the dilemma that Boris Johnson has and why it is a political decision in the end. Because if you listen to the scientists and the health uh, experts, they will say, keep Britain locked down for the next year. That's the... Only way to defeat this virus, really, when it comes down to it. Yeah. If you listen to the economists, they will say, uh, well, we've got to get Britain moving. People are going to die anyway. We're going to, just going to have to get Britain moving again. Otherwise, the whole economy is going to tank mm. and we'll end up with even more deaths. And they're, they're, they're the two extremes. It's a bit like Brexit, if you like. Remember Brexit a year ago? We I do remember that. Lately. Yeah. Um, well, so, so what the Prime Minister then has to balance is, one, dealing with a deadly and highly contagious virus, which... Um, uh, although we've passed the peak of that infection, 
it's still a massive threat to this nation and could cause many thousands of deaths. And on the other hand, the government can't keep bailing out the country indefinitely. As I said, £120 billion spent Mm. already. And if we are to avoid bankruptcies, people losing their jobs, tax rises, huge unemployment... Uh, an absolute collapse of the social fabric of this nation, then they've got to get it moving again. And I think that's what the Prime Minister was trying to do uh, yesterday in his speech. He said, look, some of us have got to start getting back to work if you can. I mean, you and I are going to work. Um, We we have to because we've got to keep our... And, uh, and, we, and I appreciate, and, and, and yeah. I appreciate, David, with that statement, we are both very fortunate to have been able to continue to work yeah. because not everybody has been able to do so. No. However, no. you know, actually, we're hearing as well at the moment that the government was slightly taken aback by the numbers of people who did what they were told because they didn't really expect that to happen, right? So they've now had to kind of slightly reverse that and say, look, if you can't work from home, now is the time to go back to work. I was getting messages from people last night saying, well, how can I go back to work? You know, I, I don't know. I can't get in touch with my employer. I'm like, well, you get in touch with your employer, you work something out with your employer, it's not for the government to single-handedly hold everybody's hand and tell every single um, organisation, business-wise, this is what you do. You know, there's a certain amount of responsibility that these businesses have to take, right? Yes, exactly. And that is one of the reasons for the subtle change in that message. Stay at home was taken far too literally. It meant stay at home if you can. And... um, What's happened is that a number of companies have actually shut up shop yeah. uh, and, and, and furloughed their staff because it's easier um, and, and instead of trying to find ways of keeping the company going. Um, and, and, OK, in, in places where, uh, like the construction industry and jobs like that, it, they could have kept going and some companies have just closed down. And, and I think that's what he's trying to say is if, if it's possible to, to keep your, your business going, yeah. keep your business going. Also, you know, whatever uh, yeah. whatever happened to, you know, what was formerly known as changing with the conditions, you know? Things have changed mm. considerably since seven or eight weeks ago when we first saw this pandemic coming and we first realised how massively dangerous it could be and how paralysing it might be for the, the, the health of the nation. Now we're in a slightly different place. What's wrong with moving the goalposts? Yes, and, of course, the great example, Mike, is the supermarkets. I'm sure you and many of our listeners have been down to the supermarkets in the last seven weeks. And what you get is spaces, a uh, queue with, with two-metre spaces between each customer. You're allowed in one at a time. There's only a certain number of people allowed in. And there's little demarcation lines on the floor of the, of the aisles to make right. sure people stay apart. It's a safer way of shopping in the present climate. Nothing is totally safe. Nothing is without risk. But, of course, we need to go to the supermarkets to get our food. Otherwise, we die of starvation. So, yes, you can do this sort of thing in other workplaces. People can find ways of working. And, and that is, I think, what the Prime Minister is trying to get across, that if, if it's safer to work, if, if you can find a way of doing your work, uh, do it. And if you can do it from home, do it from home. And, and I think say, stay alert is just a subtle change of if you're going out, you've got to stay alert. I mean, I, I remember these days, you, you do as well, when you, you go off to cover a, um, a conflict zone yeah. and you wear, your, you wear your tin hat and your, your, your and body your armour yeah. and you're told to wear it at all times. And, then, and you're, you're also told to stay alert so you don't get shot. Exactly. <clears throat> and what happens is, after a few <laughs> seven or eight weeks in downtown Baghdad, you see all the other Iraqis walking around with no body armour on and you think, I look a bit of an idiot here, right. and you take it off. Right. And that's when you drop your, drop your guard, and the same thing can happen here. You've still got to wash your hands when mm. you're coming from, from, 
from that to an outside because you pick up a, a sandwich and then you might infect yourself. Right. It's all about keeping alert, and I think that's part of the message too. Yes, and absolutely, you get to the point where you behave in a slightly different way. I mean, I was coming into work this morning, walking past the hospital. Somebody stopped me, recognised me. Can I have a picture, they said. And I said, of course, but you'll have to stand over there. You know, normally, you'd put your arm around them and you'd stand right next to them. Not anymore. Now, if you'd said to me two months ago, that's how you're going to be behaving, Mike Graham, I'd have gone, what are you talking about? But that's what we're now doing. Yes, I went into interview the Prime Minister last week, and um, uh, when I went into his study, uh, he, he waved across the... He, he sort of cocked his elbow up at me, said, hello, Dave, yes. cocked his elbow, and we sat at opposite ends of a long table, and when we posted the customary picture, which was published in the paper, we were standing two metres apart, so it was rather a long picture that they used <laughs> rather than, than a small one. So, yes... Uh, it's happening everywhere now. People do have to behave in this way, and it will become the norm. There are one or two, of course, who who don't, but you get that with everything. Yes. As far as rather bizarre, I mean, I was watching what was loosely in in, in place of Match of the Day on Saturday night. I actually quite enjoyed it. It was was, uh, um, uh, Gary Lineker with Alan Shearer and Ian Wright three people on Zoom basically talking about the ten greatest footballers ever with a few clips. And it was actually quite an enjoyable show, uh, in some ways better than some match of the day uh, games when you see sort of, you know, Stoke West Brom nil-nil or something like that, you know. And it was actually, you know, a a new form of TV, which we've had to rediscover as well because you can't Mm. do it the way we used to do it. Um, And, you know, talking of the the whole furlough schemes and the the economy, you had a pretty big scoop about the Hindujar brothers at the weekend. Tell us about that. Yes, well, uh, we, we decided it was quite, well. My colleague Ryan Saby had a, an idea of going through the, um, uh, the, the the Sunday Times rich list to see which companies own them, and lo and behold, that the, the, the company uh, the, the owners of the of the company Opta, who are Britain's richest men, top number one in the Sunday Times uh, rich list, um, worth twenty two billion pounds, yeah. are using the government scheme um, um, to, to pay its workers to furlough its workers. So, of course, there's a bit of outrage there. Um, the Tory MP Peter, du- uh, Peter Bowen was saying that uh, he hoped they'd reflect on it because the scheme is a great way of helping firms who can't afford the time through this difficult period. But he said it's not intended to help mega-rich individuals uh, get taxpayers' money in this way. So uh, it, it raises the whole question of, uh, of who is who is doing, uh, who yes. is using this and, and for what purposes. Exactly right. And again, you know, people would be critical of the government for setting up such a scheme, but had they not set up such a scheme, it would have been complete and utter chaos. People would have had no money, people wouldn't have been paid by their companies, they would have just been laid off. And so again, at the time that the furlough scheme was, was invented, it was a good idea. It's now a good idea to, 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 to sort of the run it down a bit, which is what's going to happen over the next two months. Yeah, well, as I said earlier, you cannot bail out Britain for forever. I mean, this is it, it, this this is what, where the so-called hawks are getting into uh, into action because they're saying, how do we how do we stop this? And that's another issue, of course, uh, when we were talking about people going to work if they can. Um, there is a feeling um, in, in, among some elements of, uh, of, of the Commons, some, some MPs, that a lot of people uh, are quite happy to stay at home and get 80% of their salary paid for by the government um, and do no work, sit in the garden or, or stay at home or sort the house out or whatever they're doing and think, well, oh, this is all right, particularly those who are in jobs which they don't particularly enjoy. Um, and, and so they're saying, well, you know, that's why there's an overwhelming number of people, not only those who are genuinely afraid of the virus, but an overwhelming number of people who say, 
keep keep the uh, keep the lockdown in place, which of course is is putting the pressure on the prime minister to, to to ease off a little bit in changing things. So it's all about how how many steps you take, how far you go, and and thinking what is the route out of this. And the, the truth is, I don't think anybody really knows where we go from here. Well, no. It, the, the, the worst thing the prime minister could do is to lift the restrictions. Uh, too quickly, yeah. you get a second spike of infections and people die. He would never be forgiven for that. No, and I think that's precisely why he's doing it the way he's doing it, yeah. because at this point, if something was to go wrong uh, and more people than he meant to go back to work went back to work, he would say, well, that was your decision. It wasn't my decision. Yeah. And certainly this morning on the roads, it was rammed. I had to take a detour to get to work today because of the traffic jam. Oh, that's interesting. Well, yeah. I'll tell you, I tell you uh, the Prime Minister's under pressure for one not reacting quickly enough. Two, the, the lack of uh, personal protective equipment, PPE, for NHS staff. And, for, and three, for the care homes crisis. Also a little bit of uh, not enough testing. That's, that's another issue. That, that's prison. But you can be forgiven for those. Yeah, but also what all of those... What never be forgiven for is, is, a, is a second spike, knowing yeah. how pernicious this disease but, is. I mean, look at South Korea, the place that everybody points to as the one place in the world where they've handled it brilliantly. They've just had to shut every single bar in Seoul, right? Because one guy walks into a bar, and this is not a joke, walks into a bar, uh, infects everybody in that bar. They've now shut every single bar in Seoul. And this is the country that's meant to be handling it right. Yes, um, of course we don't. We don't have, uh, have. We don't live like that in this country, so that wouldn't happen. I mean, it'd be so much easier if you had a, a dictator in the country and he just ordered everybody to, uh, to to do what they're told, otherwise they get shot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we can't do that in this country. We have a different way of doing things. <laughs> well, that is that's North like Korea, to be fair. Yeah, no, no, of course, of course, I'm joking. But I mean, um, yeah, different different countries have different. Um, different levels of, of how they operate and you know some countries have got more freedoms than we have we we you know we fall for our freedom in the war so it's a big thing that that in the, in this country to to take away our personal liberties and 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 the governments um have, since the war have been acutely aware of that and the prime minister has to take people with him on this journey and i think that's that's in his mind very much and all of the public views about we're still a bit uneasy about stopping this lockdown are certainly feeding into uh, the Prime Minister's mind when he's making these decisions. And hence, I think the government, I actually think it's not the government who are leading us here, it's the people. Yes. The people are saying this is what we want to do. There's a little bit of, we want to get back to normal soon, we want our football back, we want our concerts back, we we want to go back to work when we can, but we, we're not quite ready yet. We're not, we're not, no. we're not happy that this defeat, disease has been beaten. No, but we need to be ready and we need to get ready and we need yes. to prepare for that. David, brilliant. Thanks very much indeed for kicking off the show. David Wooding from The Sun on Sunday, absolutely leading the way uh, at the moment in the world of politics and getting the big interview with Boris Johnson that everybody else wanted. 0344 499 1000. For me, what Boris Johnson said last night was basically legitimising what a lot of people have already been doing. And if you're sitting there now thinking, but I don't know what to do now, then I'm sorry, you're an idiot. This is Talk Radio. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, you can always tell it's Monday now, because just after 11 o'clock, we talk to Peter Hitchens. So let's say hello. Peter, very good morning to you. Morning to you. So, uh, I guess we have to start with Mr Boris Johnson's speech last night. Uh, a lot of people seem confused by his message. What's your, what's your uh, state of play? Well, I, think, I think he was confused as well. I'm not sure he, he, he knew what to say, or indeed he, he knows what he's doing. And it was simultaneously pathetic and outrageous, uh, like watching John Major declaring war on Monaco. Uh, it, it just <laughs> an absurdity. Uh, the, 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 the whole thing was an attempt to keep alive uh, the, the fear that he has engendered, while at the same time trying to reconstruct a society and an economy which have been completely crippled by that very same fear. He can't uh, work out what to do. This is why I keep saying that until... It's understood that this has been a terrible mistake. We could face years of this and this interference that you mentioned at the beginning, where the government interferes in practically everything from the way you brush your teeth, the way you put your shoes on. Uh, this is why I, I've begun to call him Kim Jong Son, the dear leader, the man who, the man who's in charge of everything we do. Yeah, but he doesn't want to be that man. Every vote of our lives. But that's the point. He doesn't want to be that man. But it seems as though there's quite a large body of people in this country who now don't seem to know what to do unless somebody tells them. Well, how do you know he doesn't want to be that man? He had a choice over whether to be that man, and he took the advice of Imperial College, uh, particularly uh, the advice of Professor Neil Ferguson. Uh, who last week demonstrated in, in, <laughs> in, the, in the most detailed practical way that he didn't take the thing seriously because he ignored it and, uh, and allowed his, his mistress to come and uh, canoodle with him uh, against the very rules that had been created on the basis of his advice. So he doesn't take it seriously. Why should anybody else? But the prime minister still does. No opportunity was taken at that moment to say, well, actually, maybe it's time for a rethink. Uh, the cabinet appears to have been chosen uh, partly on the basis of an unintelligence test and partly on the basis of every single member of who's scared stiff of, of, of Kim Jong-un and, and won't stand up to him. So we're not going to get anything from him uh, or from them. But I don't see that people should make excuses for, for, for the dear leader and say that he doesn't really want to do this. If he doesn't really want to do this, why doesn't he stop doing it? Well, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to stop doing it. And that was what he announced. Trying. Well, that's what he announced yesterday in, in that... Uh, he's going to set out more of it today. And so by the end of today, we will know more about the specifics of it. But his roadmap for lifting some of the lockdown restrictions are, is going to happen, not least because circumstances have changed. I mean, you must accept that circumstances now are different to what they were eight weeks ago. Well, yes, the country is immeasurably poorer and more disrupted. But yes. you, you and I, during this uh, long controversy, have both made mistakes. Uh, and it, on both occasions, what we did was we owned up and said, sorry, I was wrong about that. Uh, and, uh, and that's how you would address a mistake. What this government has done is it's made a mistake and it will not admit it. And, and, and because it won't admit it, then we're faced with this ludicrous thing. Here's the, one of the key areas of this is what's happening in the schools. The teachers are turning around and saying, 
you say this disease is incredibly dangerous and that people can die from it in large numbers. And therefore, how can you then tell us to go back into schools uh, where it will be spread? And the government can't turn around and say, you fools, that's not true. The disease isn't half as dangerous as you think it is. In fact, it's not really particularly dangerous at all. Go back to work because the government said it was dangerous mm. in the first place. So the government is, is tied in, into accepting this kind of nonsense by the very fact that it started the panic in the first place. Yes, no, I, I get that, and, and I don't disagree with you fundamentally on that. However, their, their response would be, actually, no, what we've said is is that children um, are not really at risk, and that would appear to be largely the case. But I think well, it, also... It, it I was would, just, but why did they close the schools in the first place, then? Well, because I think the whole point of the shutdown in the first place was to stop people from moving around, and I know that you fundamentally disagree that that's in any way um, uh, helpful, but I think... Well, can you cite something? You can. Because it's been it's very, very lightly covered in the British press. There was a glancing mention of it, pretty much buried in a story in, in the Sunday Telegraph yesterday. But the governor of New York State, Andrew Cuomo, commissioned a survey of, uh, of, a, of a very large number, 1,269 12, 12, patients admitted to 113 hospitals in the state. In New York, yeah. Yeah. In um, the city, and actually. What, it and what it came back with was that... 66% uh, of those who had been admitted to a hospital uh, had been staying at home. Yes, but do you know where they were at home, though? Well, what do you mean, where, where were they? Well, I can tell you where they were at home, because I looked into this particular story as well, and they have come largely from the Bronx and Brooklyn, from very high-populated areas of public housing, very poor buildings, very poorly maintained. It's a sort of Grenfell Tower equivalent, if you like, of the well, way maybe people so, but I don't Yeah, see but that's the point. So much. you can't. Well, it does alter things because the the number of people being admitted who have been staying at home in Manhattan is ridiculously low. Similarly, in Staten Island, because the most of this particular um, number of people who were admitted having been at home, are also very very much from the minority ethnic area. They're, they're Hispanic and they're black. And so there are several reasons why that number is so high. Well, yes, the other thing is I think 96%, of the, no, 73% of the admissions were people over the age of 51. Yes, and many of them had, um, you know, underlying health problems as well. well. Exactly. So, I, so I, mean, about, I mean, it's I, a good I, point. As usual, probably more than 90% yes. have had underlying health problems. The point, the point about this is that, the, that the, the determining issue is not whether they stayed at home. No, but the so determining issue is something else. Yes, and, the, the, and, I, and I've said this before, and I, I keep, have to keep saying, this, if you if you look at the the excellent work done by Professor Carl Hennigan at the Centre for Evidence Based Medicine in Oxford, it's still saying, and it will continue to say, as far as I can see, that if you look at the deaths on the day they took place, the number of deaths from COVID nineteen in this country peaked on April the eighth, which was far too soon for the, for that for that peak and the subsequent decline in the bell curve. Uh, to have been caused in any way uh, by the panic measures instituted by the, by, by the Johnson government on the 24th of March. Yeah. It couldn't have well, been. Well, listen, so I was speaking... So we have these two pieces of evidence, whatever it is, that is, that, that, that is affecting the, 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 the spread and nature of the virus, it is not forcing people to stay at home. No, it may well not be, but... It, well, there but, you are, but, then. But, we, but, have, but, we have a major breakthrough in that case. Well, if, we can, if we can understand that, that the whole basis on which this policy was devised, is actually null, uh, then we can well, get somewhere. And then we how have about, the other, how the about other we find... I think we also discussed before about how, the, the, how France, and I think now elsewhere, they have discovered 
uh, that the the, the COVID nineteen was was actually present in Europe in December. Yeah, of it may well have been, and therefore, but, but, but therefore, I would been spreading far far earlier. Yes, than all these. That may well be true as well. But the point is, Peter, my argument has always been, and you've always failed to accept it, that the reason for doing the lockdown was to slow the rate of infection. And I know you say there's no evidence to suggest that it has slowed, but the fact that the overwhelming evidence that the NHS was able to cope was surely the reason that they did it, and that would appear to be the case. Now things have changed, so now we can look uh, more readily at, at what evidence we have. I spoke to a doctor in the last hour who's a GP who said to me that a month ago uh, he was seeing something like 50 um, patients with COVID a week, right? He says yeah. he hasn't seen any patients with COVID for the last two weeks, so clearly something has changed. Well, something has changed. What, the, what could well be changing is that the standard bell curve of the disease is proceeding as it would have done anyway. Uh, this normally happens with infections. Yeah. They, they rise, they peak, they fall. And that you have to, what you do is you, you assume in this or, or presume that the, the government view uh, that government action is, is the reason for the decline in infections uh, without any evidence that that is so. You, 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 of course, it is absolutely true that the vast numbers of infections and deaths predicted uh, by the Imperial College model didn't take place. But there's no, I've seen no evidence at all, and I continue to see no evidence at all, that this was caused by what the government did. No, and I can see a lot. I can see a huge policy of, of immense. Yes, but you can hardly suggest in, in, in lives and health and money uh, on the basis of virtually no information at all, and on the basis of, of uh, again, I have to say that the modelling from Imperial College is coming under sustained attack now from experts. There's a very interesting posting by somebody under the, the slightly ludicrous pseudonym of. Sue Denim, uh, which um, yes. you probably work out means pseudonym, but it's well worth reading. Yes, okay. On the whole, but let me just ask of you the, of, of the of, of the imperial uh, the imperial model, and it just isn't very. Yes, well, good. listen, I, I like you. I, I'm very suspicious of why they were even talking to Neil Ferguson, given his track record in all manner of different things. I don't think he's ever got anything right in his life. However, I'm sure he has. however, I don't want to be however, about it, but well, so, well so I'm not interested in whether he has or not. Wrong. What I'd like to say is this. This country did not operate unilaterally. You know, I'd have more sympathy with your cause if you said to me, we did things which nobody else did. That's not true. We did the same, the same things that almost every other country in the world did, with very, very few exceptions, and we know that you have Sweden as an exception. But, uh, you know, almost every other country in the world did exactly what we did. And so at the time when the rate of infection was rising like crazy and people had seen bodies of the dead being put into lorries in, in Italy and, and driven away through the middle of the night like some kind of form of zombie movie, they didn't want to see that here. And so they had to take action, and the action they took, you're now saying, was over the top. But at the time, it seemed perfectly reasonable. Now, hang on a second. You've been a journalist for a long time. Yes. You know as well as I do that there is a sort of market in photographs and things like that. You also know that generally if things are going wrong uh, in government-run institutions... The government takes pretty severe steps to prevent them uh, from being publicised. So normally, uh, when the government, when the, when the NHS has a major winter crisis, which happens quite a lot, uh, and a lot of people are dying from flu, which happens quite a lot, mm -hmm. uh, you don't get uh, teams of, uh, of, of journalists and, and, and camera crews invited into the intensive care wards. On the contrary, no. every effort is, is, is made. Yeah, but if they, no, but if they... you don't get pictures. Uh, where, where photographers presumably are informed uh, that, that this is happening because it's quite difficult to do these things by chance. 
You don't get pictures of lorry loads of coffins either. There aren't any. That's why well, there no, haven't been it's any. Because there aren't any. Actually, I, there, there are. The, remember the, the famous pictures of the supposed mass graves being dug on that island in in, in, in New York. This was normal. This was an, an island which has been used for decades to to, to bury people whose relatives can't be found and can't afford to pay for Yes, but, but what I'm saying is they weren't, they were not, presented. I'm talking about the video footage that we saw yeah, from, from Italy, which was which was shot by news crews in Italy because it was going on. It was not, it did not. Do you know, do you know how not, those it, news crews it, happened to be there? It, Have it, you ever checked that? No, I've never checked no, that, well, but, but I, I know how stories so. come I, about, I Peter. I, I know how stories I, I, come I, I about. People, hang on a second. I just went bad news about government institutions becomes readily available. Well, when you get told things, when you work for a newspaper, as you and I both have done, and you still do, when you worked in a newsroom rather than as a columnist, you would get people ringing you up and saying, by the way, over at Middlesex General, there's a terrible scandal going on at the moment because every night at midnight, they, they fill up about six articulated lorries with a load of dead people. And that would happen, and we would hear about it, and we would report on it. And I that's probably how it happened so. in Italy. I don't think so. But we, we well, that, well, that. I just think it's, a bit, it's been quite extraordinary how, uh, how, how this, this thing has been propagandised. And I, I've said before that what the, the governments of these countries have, have done has been to distill fear into power. Uh, they've, they've spread and created fear. They've done everything they could, it seems to me, well, to, 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 to engender fear in the population. Well, let me ask and, you and a question. They've made power out of it, which they now can't control, right. because the power is based on a fear which they've let loose and they can't calm down. Well, let me ask you a question. What did you do on Saturday? What did I do on Saturday? Yes. I have work to do on Saturday. So you didn't go out? Oh, I always go out. I, I take my. I, I, I would not take a day without exercise. Right. Okay. Well, it was very busy in London. So busy, in fact, that even the police were putting out messages saying the numbers of people out in the in the parks right now are so big that we are losing the battle. We can't fight the battle anymore. Now, that does not tell me that we are a nation of frightened people. That tells me we are a nation of people who, when the weather is nice, want to get out there and have picnics and drink beer and eat pizza and ride around on on bicycles. It does not strike me that we are a nation living. In fear. Well, again, I keep seeing instances of, of, of behaviour when I am out, of pe people taking elaborate and absurd measures to avoid passing within distance of, sure. of moving people. Yeah, but on, so what? It's, they're still out. Well, I, they're, they're, these contradict you. I don't know when you, you said lots of people were out, as you say, but were they, were they out and breaking the social distancing rules? Yes. Uh, were they? Yes, they were all in parks. There were pictures. The Hackney police yeah, put them pictures. out. There were pictures of groups of people who were presumably from the same household. Not really. There was groups of people. The ones well, that I saw sitting well separated from each other. And I, whenever I see people in parks, that's what I see. The, 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 there may well be groups of people, but they've come, they've come from households and they're keeping... Well, they're, they're hardly cowering in fear, though, are they? Well, they're eating they're pizza, doing, for God's it, sake. They're doing, it, they're doing it because they have been persuaded that, that they, they need to be afraid of, of, of doing what would come naturally, which is, which is not turning their backs on other people. Well, no, I don't agree. I think you can't have it both ways. You can't, on the one hand, say that we're all under house arrest and everybody's frightened to do anything and frightened to go out, when clearly many people are out. This morning, I was in a traffic jam in south-east London because so many people are driving around going back to work. We are not in lockdown anymore. It's as simple as that. Well, it's, some people some people are, are are breaking it, and some people aren't. A lot of people are continuing to uh, to, to, to to stay very much. So I have to say, this isn't a, if, not, this is not a terribly outdoorsy. Apart from a, a fairly small segment of the population of, of younger people, this isn't a terribly outdoorsy, exercise-obsessed country. And, well, it does and seem to be now. People may, may well right. think this is not well, taking you less exercise than they did before. But what is it's certainly the case that uh, you, you're comparing it with the complete. Uh, complete decimation
isolation of six weeks ago, there are more people out, and there are, there are reasons for that, which we haven't time to go into, but you know, know them as well as I do. But it's still the, the level of traffic, the number of people in the streets, the way in which people behave towards each other is still wholly different from what you and I would have regarded as normal until now. Well, that's true, because we have been in an extraordinary period of, of history, and I think we can both agree at least on that. Now, you can say to me that, you know, the government shouldn't have done what they, what they did, but in, my, in your view, you've still never really answered this question. What would you have done? Would you have done nothing? Would you have absolutely kept everybody going to work? All the pubs stayed open, despite the fact that France was shutting theirs, that Spain had shut all theirs, that Italy had shut theirs, that Germany, Denmark, almost every other country in Europe had shut theirs. You would have done nothing. Well, I've answered the question many times, I'll answer it again. I would have done what the Swedish government has done. Uh, it, it is out of caution, I mean, my natural instinct would be to say this is, this is wholly overblown and it's not really a matter for government intervention. But because I, I, I'm aware that I might, be, I might be wrong about the seriousness of this thing, I think that the Swedish government's action was wise in that it took sensible precautions, uh, which have been, uh, in my view, uh, highly effective and have kept the country alive. And I would have well, it hasn't. I, 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 the, the, the answer to the question has remained the same from the start. Yes, but I'm the not, fact I'm is, I'm not saying before anybody suggests that I did this, what Sweden's done has been perfect. And they made they made the same mess with care homes that we did, mm. for instance. So they've also they've also not. now That's they've also why their figures are higher than they otherwise would. Well, be. actually, the, the, the huge number, the great heaps of dead which were confidently expected in Sweden by the proponents of the of the imperial model, uh, were uh, have not taken place. But, the, but their, their, their sort of percentage of deaths is more or less the same as ours. They've only got a very small population. And also, at the weekend, you might I don't know whether you saw there was a story in the FT quoting somebody called Christina Nyman, former deputy head of monetary policy at the Riksbank, who is now chief economist at uh, Handelsbanken, which is one of the big Swedish banks. She says, we think Sweden will pretty much end up more or less the same as every everywhere else, and they're predicting now minimum 10% down on the economy. Well, I'm sure that the Swedish economy has been damaged, um, but it, it, I don't think it's been damaged anything like as much as ours. Well, we're predicting I, I, what, 14%. What, what, what Professor Giesiger was saying as well is that everybody will end up more or less uh, where they would have done whatever they did. Exactly. The is, no, so what's funny, the difference? Because the point about this is that during the period uh, involved, Sweden has remained largely open as a society and hasn't done anything like as much damage to its economy as we have. And we well, that's not true because this woman says it's going to end. We will be paying well, for decades. Well, this banking, banking, like no, the banking woman says that they're going to end up the same. That's her prediction. Which so she, she, th she says they're going to end up the same economically. Then she simply hasn't studied what's going on in this country. Well, she's a, a, a Swedish banker. I think she might know a bit more about the Swedish economy. Well, she than may you. know about Sweden, but I think if she, I, I, she can't, she, Sweden simply has not done this thing of paying people to do nothing uh, with fairy gold. Yeah, but this you call it fairy gold, but the fact is, right... It hasn't closed down its economy in no, the way that we have. No, no, but we have not closed down our economy. People are not without money. People are still able to spend the money that they have, whether it's supplied to them by the government or not, whether it is made by them continuing to be able to work. The econ You make out the economy has been destroyed. I maintain that it has not been destroyed. Well, I, I believe that it would be destroyed if we don't fix it, and we don't fix it soon. And as well, soon as we start coming out of lockdown, which I think is going to happen in the next few weeks then there is a chance that we, that we will be fine. No, I think already, I, I've said this during the whole period of the supposed austerity of the Cameron Osborne years, nine years of it, uh, the, the country saved 30 billion quid, which would otherwise have been spent, and this was deemed to be vitally important to the economy. We are currently spending 2.4 billion pounds a day, yeah. which means every 12 days we are using up all the money that was saved during nine years of austerity. 
How many years of austerity, how many lean years of high taxes, uh, unemployment, low wages do you think it's going to take to recover from this immense expenditure? I don't think it will of, take of, any, of any time at all. By a government which, no. which was magic well, out of nothing and which was mocking. Six months ago, the people who were doing this now were mocking Jeremy Corbyn both for his, uh, his Maoist uh, proposals to interfere in the private lives of people uh, and for his magic money trees. And now they've got a magic money rainforest of their own, of yeah. enormous dimensions, and they themselves are interfering in, in huge yes, detail with, as, as with, you with, know, with, Peter, our, with our lives. What, what, now, what, was it, what is it that they, that they stand for? And, and didn't they believe what they were saying? Well, no, because times change. I mean, are you not capable of pivoting uh, your position when, in, when everything changes? I mean, you can't possibly say to me that back in December when they were uh, electioneering uh, over Brexit and about most of the, uh, the economic values of both parties, that that would not change when we get hit by a worldwide pandemic. I mean, it would, be, it would be change. nonsensical no, for you not to change. change. If, you, if, you don't, if you believe that it, interfering in people's private lives and extending the power of government into, in, in, deeply into... My private life hasn't been interfered wrong. with. It's, it's always wrong. How has you, your private life been interfered that, with? If you believe that economies are damaged by the invention and spending of non-existent money and the mortgaging of the future for decades to come, then you have to... We've been doing that, that for years. We have been borrowing money for years without ma anybody making much of a fuss about it. Quantitatively, quanti doesn't matter. You said the principles are the same, right? It does matter. So, no, no, no. The, so the, now the, you're the, saying the, the principles, principles no, 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 don't no, the matter. The principle is that, the, the, that, that there is a quantitative difference between the levels of borrowing which we were engaged in before this began, and, and, and it's, a, also, it's so huge... But it is also a qualitative difference. Okay. Well, let me ask you another question. One, it's a change from one attitude towards economics to a wholly different one. Would you? From a well, let me ask you. A and cautious one to, a, right. to an absolutely irresponsible and incautious one. Okay. Well, let me ask you a question uh, because we have to go shortly. And so know, you have to I give know. me a very Sorry. short answer, I'm afraid. Sorry. <laughs> um, if you were told that it might rain, would you buy an umbrella or would you say, the hell with it? Well, of course, I'd, I'd buy an umbrella. Yeah. There you go. Well, that's what? what we've... So we've got an umbrella. Yes. And so we don't get wet. Well, yes, but then if it doesn't rain... You've still uh, got you an umbrella. The umbrella, will you? Yeah, no, but you can this use it next time. Umbrella we're talking about. <laughs> this, thing, this thing costs more than a nuclear umbrella. Well, this thing is going to cost more than a Trident replacement, which, very was, which, possibly. Is, which was already mad. Yes. This is, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is in the scales of money which are, for which the word astronomical is inadequate. Mm. They, they are astonishing. Mm -hmm. No, I get that. Listen, it's been a pleasure as ever, Peter. Uh, we shall do it again next week. Um, we shall see what would have moved the dial by then. Peter Hitchens, columnist at the Mail on Sunday, uh, raconteur uh, of some repute. Uh, we'll be back uh, after this. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, you're about to hear a very familiar voice uh, talking to me on our homeschooling section today because what we thought we would do, uh, having meandered our way through all sorts of very interesting subjects from Stonehenge to mathematical equations to uh, how the moon works to how rainbows work, although we haven't done that one yet. We're going to do that one soon. Uh, we thought, why well, about how your voice works and how do you get a great voice? Because Sandy War, of course, one of the great voices that you hear here at Talk Radio, reads the news every single morning uh, from very, very early on, from Julie Hartley Brewer's show all the way through until midday. Sandy, very very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. How nice to be speaking to you in this particular manner, because normally I'm just uh, either going late to the news or coming back <laughs> off the news or something like that. But you have used your voice 
all of your career, I imagine. I mean, at what point did you know that you had a good voice? Do you know what? It was right back in the early days of my schooling, just after Noah and the Ark. Um, I went to one of those schools that insisted that every child should take part in things like poetry reading yes. sessions and little debating classes and so on. And I remember when I was 11, I took part in our school poetry competition and I had to recite the tale of Custard the Dragon. Oh, yes. I can remember every word. <laughs> it's a big nonsense poem. It really is. <laughs> Goes on. It's got some wonderful um, rhymes in it. Um, there's one bit where it go, where there's some um, there's all these various characters, and there's meowch cried e uh, Ink and ooh cried Belinda for there was a pirate climbing mm. in the window. Yes, it's all that sort of stuff. It's great. Um, but it, it 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 sort of gave me a confidence, I think, to perform, um, be a bit of a show off. Some might say yes. Um, but I do think I do a little bit of work coaching in schools as well as lecturing at university and presenting. And I think it, giving people the ability to speak up and believe they have the right to be heard is really important and really helpful because so many schools now have presentation mm. as part of what they're doing. And while we're in this current environment, a lot of universities, for example, are now interviewing on their selection days by Skype. Right. Uh, and it's a very different type of presenting and it can really stress you out. Well, it can because I suppose if you're going for an interview, as it were, you're sitting in the same room, you don't see that as really public speaking. But if you're actually being interviewed over a sort of electronic device and you're talking into a laptop and seeing a screen. It's more of a public speaking thing, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, what we do, this, well, the conversation we're having right now, is not, I don't consider this presenting. Right. This is, this is talking. Mm. It's talking with a purpose, but the main thing is to be real, to be engaging, to be natural and actually try and just be reasonably relaxed. As yes. soon as you then put a camera on someone or put some stress on someone, all the things we naturally do, breathing, for example, <laughs> suddenly become a problem. And you can end up getting so stressed you forget how to sit, how to speak, what to do with your tongue, with your teeth, and all sorts of things start mm. to then happen as a consequence. I know when I first started doing radio, which I didn't do until quite late in life because I was in Fleet Street, um, they sent me a voice coach at one point who sort of taught me some things and exercises that you can do and some breathing exercises. And she said, when you're driving in the car, you know, you should be singing, you should be going high and going low and doing all of those things. I don't really do that anymore, but it, I found it quite helpful at the time. It can be. It depends on the type of presenting you're going to do. I tend not to do that so much because one of the, the my approach to voice coaching with people is to try and get people really comfortable and actually so that the last thing they're thinking about is what they sound like. Mm. What you want to be thinking about is what do you want to say? Yes. Actually, what are you trying to communicate? And yes, you can do all of the diaphragm breathing and all of the me, me, ma, ma, moo, moo type of exercises, which can be helpful if there's a particular problem. But most of it is about trying to make sure what you want to say connects. If I might indulge in a bit of science for Please. a moment here. There is a quite influential piece of research around how we communicate and where the meaning in that exchange comes from. It's by a, a researcher called Mal Rabian. Uh, and it's been misused and used in all sorts of environments. And it basically breaks down the way we take meaning from an exchange with someone. Mm. And that it says that 55% of the meaning we draw from an exchange is from body language right. and other distractions. So in the context of doing a Skype interview, that might be, what are you wearing and what books are on the bookshelf behind you? That's a big one at the yes. moment, isn't it? It's a huge one, isn't it? I mean, I'm never going to have a bookshelf behind me because I now see it as a complete kind of cop-out. I'm going to try and do something far more interesting, I think, but I don't know what that would be. So if you're trying to say 
something really important and serious and all the books behind you are Beano comics and I don't right. know why that sprang to mind but you know the sort of thing I'm saying it's going to undermine your message and there's a lot of people doing a lot of work on this at the moment about that d- distraction yes that also will apply to how you're sitting the angle that your camera's at mm. Um, so so many people are Skyping with the camera up their nose or yes. uh, with the window behind them, so all you're seeing is a silhouette. But that's 55% of the meaning we will take is from all of that yes. stuff. Well, it is true to say, isn't it, that presentation is, is, is an awful lot of it in the sense that you and I will probably have seen many presentations made by various people in various companies that we've worked in, some of which have been brilliant, some of which have just been awful, because whoever was doing it didn't think the presentation part was important. Yeah, well, that's the 55. There's also 38% is what we might call, I mean, some scientists call it the meta-language or the para-language, and this is how we speak. So if you speak far too fast or you've got some quirk with the way you use your voice. Now, that used to be in the old 80s style of newsreading. There was a quirk that we were all encouraged. It was like a very hard sell. Mm. You know, the at the risk of, of naming an advertiser, but what the heck, you know the silly banger? The yes. Bang, and the dirt is right. gone! That style of presenting. Yes. And one of the quirks of it was you would hang on to the last word of your sentence. Yes. So it had that real impact. Mm. That's good. And would you ever do that thing now where, where you hear people saying you have to punch like every sixth word or something like I that? I think that's an awful way of, of coaching people to yeah. talk because what happens, again, going back to where I was starting... I, I never understood it, to no, be honest. No, and you're thinking about how you're saying it and you want to be thinking about what you're saying yeah. because the nugget is the 7% left in our mathematical equation, which is the actual words. So you've got to get your 55% the body language, your 38%, the way you speak, aligned, so what we actually hear is the 7%, which yes. is the words. Yes. And that's that's the sort of theory um, around a lot and of And do that. you have any tricks that you would wish to impart? You may not wish to. Um, oh, yeah, no, In I'm terms of the impart. speed with which you speak, because you speak at a very regu- regular rate, which is easy to understand and interesting, whereas other people, as you say, don't always have that come naturally to them. There's a good way to practice that. You need to make yourself a little um, mixtape backing track with different tempos of music on mm. it, just a few se- just the hook of a track, and speak to the music so that you are practising controlling the speed change. Right. So, or it could even be a mood change. Mm. So you're, you're actually becoming in control of the speed that you're speaking at. Because yes. there's a general feeling that the more authoritative someone is, the more confident they are with speaking slowly. Yes, I think that's right. Now, in front of me, I have a list of tongue twisters. <laughs> um, I'm not sure why I have them in front of me, but I assume well, you want me to do something with them. Some people, the, the issue they have is that they have a problem mobilising their teeth or their jaw or their tongue in order to speak clearly. Mm. So speed is one thing, clarity is another. You can do all sorts of exercises to loosen up your speech muscles if you've got a big presentation. I mean, a simple yawning... <gasps> <laughs> really opens up the back of your throat yeah. and your jaw and, and hopefully everyone's catching that off me. It's very infectious. It is isn't infectious, it? isn't it? Yeah. There's one called the fish hooks, which um uh, if you if you're you're on camera, aren't you? So you're gonna look really stupid if you want to in, in join in this, but it's quite good. If you use your finger like a fish hook yeah. and hook the side of your mouth to one side and oh, then yeah. try shrieking. Oh yeah, that, that, yes. yeah, that also yes. mobilizes your lips and just help you mm. use them in, in right. a different way. Yes. Um, so all of those sort of exercises. Another one is to put three fingers together as if you were making a rather large gun to fire at someone with your fingers and put that in your mouth. 
Right. I'm, I'm not doing that on camera. <laughs> and what that does again is that opens the back of your jaw up so that you then can speak with more freedom. So that's the idea. Okay. And with your actual teeth and tongue, mm. tongue twisters are by far the best. They are. So I've just randomly picked a couple of my favourites. Um, some of them are reasonably straightforward, but they focus on a particular sound, if you've got a particular sound. So, so number one is a classic one there, um, which is uh, she sells seashells on the seashore. Yes. I remember first teaching that to one of my children, and they couldn't. They just couldn't get it. They could not say it at all. The, the second one is my favourite, actually, the least police dismisseth us. Thought to be one of the hardest tongue twisters yes. there are. I guess if you grow up in Scotland, you're probably more yes. familiar with that one. Yeah, um, absolutely right. The third one, well, I the am, third one I've never seen. I'm told it's the hardest one there is. I don't think I quite buy into that, which is the sixth sick sheiks, sixth sheep's sick. Yes. It's again, it's just about navigating your tongue and your teeth around it to get the shape right. Yes, that is quite terrifying. The next bit is, is that not from The Wizard of Oz? It's from Gilbert and Sullivan. Oh, Gilbert and Sullivan, OK. Now, the, the famous patter songs from Gilbert and Sullivan are very good at helping you understand that the, the way to crack this is it's all about the rhythm of speech. If you look at that as just a great long flow of words, this is the I am the very model of a modern major general yes. of information, vegetable, landable, or mineral. If you get the rhythm of it right, yes. that's really easy to do. Yes, again, you can think of the music, can't you? The reason I thought it was from The Wizard of Oz is because it, it sounds very similar to one of the speeches made um, by the, you know, the, uh, what do you call them, the, the, the little people. Oh, the little munchkins in the munchkins, there. The munchkins, yeah, yeah yes. when they start singing and they do, just before they do the big dance and they start something, it's something like that. But all of these exercises are really only necessary if you think you've got a challenge with the way you want to enunciate. Most of it is about just preparing to think, what do I want to say? Mm. Rehearsing it, planning it through. And we're very big on the letter P when we're talking about training in voice work. There, there are several P's. So yes. before you prepare, it's the uh, proper preparation prevents poor performance. Yes, very good. And then when you're actually speaking, it's thinking of the pitch, the pace, the pause and the power. Yes, and when... I know this is not technically about actual speaking, but when you are giving some kind of presentation at work, should you walk around? Should you stand still behind a lectern? What's your preferred sort of scenario? It depends on the context entirely. If you're doing a, a lecture or a presentation where actually most of what you're trying to do is hold someone's attention, yes. it's best to stand as still as you possibly can okay. and make sure the gesture or the movement is under your control and you're doing it with a purpose. Otherwise, you can just look shifty. That you're pacing around. Well, some people can't help that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of psychology as well about which side of the stage you should stand on right. when you're presenting. Mm. Because of the way most of us construct our thoughts about where the past is and where the future is. So yeah. most of us would think if we were looking at someone in front of us, we would go from left to right to go past to future. It's partly because of the way we write. Okay. So if you want to present a real problem, you would go and stand on the left-hand side of the stage in the past area of the presentation, and you would gradually move move across to the far right-hand side, which is where the solution is. And that actually isn't see has been seen to have quite an important psychological effect on, mm. on people. Hence, if you remember back to the first TV leaders' debates, there yes. was a lot of, of debate about who should stand where mm. because the perception is the most powerful position to stand is on the far right as the audience is looking at it. Yes, interesting. Well, it's fascinating stuff. We could probably do this all day, but uh, sadly <laughs> we, are, we are out of time. But thank you very much for My uh, pleasure. Uh, filling us in there. Will you be back at the normal time tomorrow, I dare say? I will indeed. Fantastic. Fantastic. Sandy Wall there uh, with a few tips for you. If you are making a public presentation or indeed if you are just simply trying to um, be listened to perhaps a little bit more, it's always good to practice how you speak. It's always good if you're listening to this because you're home from school and you're not going to school. It's always good to practice your, 
your diction, uh, the way that you speak, the way that you listen to words, the way that you say words, and the, the language of learning words also is great. So uh, thanks to Sandy for doing that. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.